This is a uh, panel about a topic that was brought up more than once today already, and that's the press and the role of journalists in this whole process. Uh, and we would like to see if we can do something uh, that's very much teach-in-like. One of the things we're going to do is talk very briefly up here. We want to get you folks up to these mics as fast as possible uh, to learn from you as much as you learn from us, because we have a feeling that there's a lot more collective knowledge out there than we could possibly give you from up here. Uh, my name is Dan Gilmore. I'm a columnist from the San Jose Mercury News. I write a weblog. Uh, hi, Dan. And I'm with two people who are among my real heroes in the uh, journalism field in a general way, and I uh, want to introduce them to you. At my far left, your right, um, I won't take that analogy much further, is Jeff Jarvis. <laughs> Uh, who I'm really thrilled to see here. Uh, Jeff is, if you see it, well, when you see his blog, you'll see how prolific the man is. And next to uh, Jeff is Jay Rosen, uh, who's from NYU, who's also someone who has really been doing powerful, powerful work in understanding what's going on with this and then uh, trying to help the rest of us understand it better. And uh, both of these guys have been uh, wonderful resources for me and continue to be, and I'm uh, very much thrilled to be on the same stage with them. So I'm going to just, in, in the uh, notion of a teach-in, I'm actually going to ask them to uh, maybe try and teach us all something um, to start off. Then we will bat it around a little bit for a while. and. Uh, then get again, I want to get to you folks quickly. The general topic here is whether something is going on with all this digital democracy technology that changes the journalist role. We're pretty sure it is changing. We're pretty sure that this does change it uh, and that there are pretty major impacts for everybody. Uh, what we want to come out of this session with is some sense of, well, how do we, in the end, just do this better? Uh, in hopes that we end up with that, that ideal in a democracy, which is a, an informed electorate, is, which is, after all, part of the point uh, of getting it right as, as a nation. So I'm going to ask Jay to start off and explain to us, if he can, what, uh, where are we in this general area? And, and Kind of how did we how did we get here, uh, and then we'll ask Jeff to say how can we go from here to somewhere better in the future. So, Jay, you want to start? Am I live? Okay. Uh, first of all, I want to thank O'Reilly and Company for inviting me here. This is my second tech conference ever, and so far it's been wonderful. Um, Teaching should teach us things, and I think the most important thing this teaching could teach us is what kind of moment this is, where we are in time, and what makes this different than any other occasion for having a conference. And uh, in about five minutes, I'll, I'll give my own answer to that. 
Joe made a rather large deal this morning about 1960 as a comparison point for today. And the reason that he did this is the same reason Frank Rich used in a piece he wrote uh, during a couple months ago uh, about developments in politics, because 1960 was a year in which people finally saw the power of television come into politics, into the presidential campaign in a major way, and everyone kind of realized either at the time or later that this was a decisive thing. Um, I'd like to take your understanding back, 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 way back before that to 1760, 200 years earlier. That was around the time we had the birth of the public. The idea of a modern public, which is informed about events, has a voice in politics, and whose opinions count. And that idea first arose around 1760 or so in England and France to describe a new phenomenon on the political stage. The new phenomenon was a large group of people outside of parliament, outside of the office holders, outside the court of the king, who knew about what was going on in politics and talked about it on their own in coffee houses and other places because they had an interest in what the state was doing. And this new development, this new group of people was called the public, and the fact that their opinions suddenly started to matter in politics as a whole was a new thing. And so people gave birth to this idea of public opinion as a counterweight to the power of the crown, to parliament, to the nobility, to elites. This was a radical idea that applied only to a very small number of people, but the principles by which those people were organized were egalitarian, universal principles. Everybody has a voice. Everybody should be informed. Everybody should talk about politics. Everybody has a role as a citizen in the affairs of the world. At the time, a radical idea. Now, the great thing about that public was that it was founded on universal principles. You need openness. You need information. Uh, you need everyone's right to free speech. But um, unfortunately, it was limited to an extremely small group of bourgeois traders who had the money and time to do this. So what we saw from 1760 to 1860 was the gradual expansion of that idea so that the public began to include the entire population. This took basically until the 20th century before we started to include everybody in the public. Around 1860 or so, we had a decisive event, which was the birth of the mass media, first with the penny newspapers, and following that, lots of technologies that have become incorporated in the media. And that helped spread the public to everybody in the sense that newspapers circulated with everybody. News began to circulate to everybody. And there was a lot of commentary at the time about how wonderful this was that finally the world is connected. And you saw a lot of the same hopes around the internet were raised originally around the telegraph uh, for that reason. But something happened when we began to include everybody in the public, which was that their role began to be converted downward. They gained membership, but they lost a lot of agency. Because this huge public connected by mass circulation, newspapers and wire services, could receive information, but it couldn't talk. It couldn't participate. It was there as an audience. And at, from that time up until today, there's been this 
gradual refinement and development and institutionalization of the public as an audience, as somebody on the receiving end of messages. By 1960, that had gone very far, and it moved into politics. And from that moment, we began to get media-age politics, driven by professionals. And today, Joe called it broadcast politics. The moment we're at now is that the original promise of the public, which is a collection of people who are not only readers, but also speakers, people who have opinions that not only count, but they can themselves voice, people who have not only ideas to share, but a role in politics. That's the original promise of the 1760 public. From that time till today, there's been this conversion of the public into an audience, and a lot of professions grew up on that, including political consulting, pollsters, political professionals, and journalists. And that's exactly what's starting to come apart now. And the public is no longer out there as an inert, atomized audience. It's starting to organize itself in small ways and large. And as Dick Morris said in a very interesting interview at BOP News uh, earlier uh, during this campaign, the internet has done one thing radical, it's given voters a mouth. Voters a mouth. And that's what's different about this moment to me, is that the public now is no longer that inert thing on the receiving end of the mass media. And now we can see that from 1860 till now, we've had this huge production, not only of media content and messages, but of silence on the part of citizens themselves. The production of silence has actually been a part of the media age. And now that's starting to come to a close. And that's what's very exciting about right now. Well, now you know why Jay is someone I pay very close attention to. Uh, Jeff is now going to take us forward a bit, and now that we all have a mouth we can use, uh, how does that, what's that going to do with journalists and, what are, and both public and journalists, and what's our mutual roles here? If I were smart, I'd shut up and let Professor Rosen continue his lecture, because I enjoyed the heck out of it, as you did. But I'm not smart, so I'll, I'll keep going. I, I've been in media for all my adult life. I've been a reporter and an editor and all that. I've never seen a time as exciting and as revolutionary as this. Because now, uh, these are lines that you all know, because you all live this, but the people own the printing press for centuries. Um, you had to have a printing press to have a voice. And now, thanks to this, uh, everyone owns a printing press. And as Jay said at BloggerCon, now the readers are writers and the writers are readers. And it changes the roles radically. As I look at this election, I think we've come through some very important and, and big changes. The first is that. The first is that the audience has a voice. When I lecture people in my business uh, about blogs as blog boy uh, in a suit, um, the first obligation we have, I tell them, is not to go writing blogs. We already do write. We already have a printing press. Now the people have a voice. The first obligation is to listen. 
The first obligation is to go read those blogs and see what the people are saying and what they care about, which may be very different from what we say they care about on our front pages or in our stump speeches. And so the first and most important thing is to listen to the people. Um, And in that sense, in a lot of ways, I think the reporters have gotten the story wrong lately, is that they're looking the wrong way. They're looking at the stump when they should be looking around at the green and seeing what the people have to say. That's the new story here. The other thing that hit me, uh, Bob News, Matt Stoller, put up the stump speeches from three candidates, from Edwards and Kerry and Dean, and I hadn't heard them. And I, and I know how this works. I've, I've covered ca- campaigns. I've listened to the stump speeches. I've listened to them be repeated. We all know how that works. But I hadn't heard these guys. And so I listened to it. And the, the moment for me that went off was all of the information you could possibly want from the candidates is online. Now, you know how they stand on the issues now. You don't have to go through the filter of the reporters to get that. You know what they're saying. You can listen to them. You can watch them. And so, in essence, what's happened is it's revealed political reporting to really not be reporting. Political reporting is the pack going and repeating what's happening over and over and over again. And there really isn't a lot of value in that. So what I hope happens is what I think we've seen happen in the Dean campaign as the as the poster child for this new era and give them a lot of credit for what they created, but it's only the first step of many, many steps in this. I think we can change the essential public interaction among ourselves because of all this. And uh, on my blog, I, I tried the other day to come up with kind of a manifesto of that, which I'll change and will all change, but I'd like to hear these kind of specifics from all of you, and let me just give you five notes of what I think should happen. The first is that I would love to see an expectation. We should expect that the meetings in our towns should all be webcast. Uh, I I have kids. Ergo, I'm home at night. Ergo, I can't go to the school board and do the things that matter to my kids. There's something wrong with that picture. Um, I've gone to meetings, but it's hard to go to meetings. If I could watch the meeting, I would. Simple as that. And there's no reason in the world we can't webcast those meetings now. If we can webcast this and everything else, we can webcast my school board meeting in New Jersey. That's one. Two, we should insist and expect that local politicians, federal congressmen, have weblogs or an equivalent. What the heck are you guys saying? Say it to us. Go ahead and let us know what's what. Three, that we should expect that federal and state agencies have websites that are equally as informative. You go to the FCC website, there is a lot of information there, and it's it's good information, but it's hard to dig into it. They need a weblogger there to show what's important. They need a search engine as easy as Google. They need to become citizen-friendly. Four, we should expect politicians, candidates, and officials to enter into dialogues with us. Uh, Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to answer every single email. That's terribly inefficient. Having drones sit in offices opening letters and sending out form letters is terribly inefficient and insulting. But if you end up entering into a forum here and there or into a weblog link contest, you have interacted with the audience, with the public. And then finally, five, if all that happens, right, if we can get all that information, if there's an infrastructure of civic information that exists for us citizens, because it exists now, there's an infrastructure for us to be able to talk about what we want to talk about, That means that weblogs have to be easy while they already are, and everybody can have a weblog. Then five is we should expect that the journalists should truly report now and not just repeat 
what they can find through all the means I've listed above. So that includes telling us what our officials aren't telling us. That's reporting. More important, it involves telling the officials what we really care about, not what they think we care about. Uh, are the pugs, are there issues around the pugs at Meetup that aren't being covered? <laughs> the day of one-size-fits-all journalism is over. Right? We can all find, I don't, I don't, fragmentation does not scare me in the least. Fragmentation means we're all better served, we all have more choice. It's a good thing. But now at this point where we can get this tremendous amount of information, we can get the information that matters to us. I don't care what, what you know, people in newspapers say. I can care, get what I care about as a citizen. I can interact with other citizens and organize. I can interact with my government and have an impact on the government. That's all new. So what really jazzes me about all this, and I'm delighted to hear it a whole bunch today, is how do we get this down to a local level? How do we answer Hallie's question this morning of supporting her as a blogger by having a robust ad infrastructure to take what blog ads has done and explode it to support this new medium of what I love to call not just weblogs, but citizens' media. The journalist in what you, in your five points, the journalist had a peripheral role in one. Uh, is, is that the future of big journalism, capital B, capital J? No, I, I think that professional journalism, what people now call, uh, with some resentment, big media, is not going to just leave the stage because Josh Marshall showed up. Uh, and we'll be dealing with this complex for a long time uh, because of its institutional power and because alternative methods are not going to spread immediately to a large number of people. So the media is going to still be here but I, what I think is different now is that the way journalists and other providers can establish their authority with us, the, what I call the terms of authority, are changing in this transaction. And I say that's true both for the press, people like yourself, professional journalists like Ed Cohen, Jeff, and the media, which is not the same thing. You know, the media, to me, is that big attention complex out there that has a million heads and is basically a global operation of recruiting audiences, linking audiences. Journalism, the press, is primarily uh, an institution we understand because it's connected to politics. The press is the republic's name for the media, essentially. And we have to keep these things separate because the... It's important to preserve the press, in a sense, from the media. So the, uh, the prospects for the media as, as this colossus, I think, are pretty good because it can keep colonizing more and more of the world. It's a tremendously dynamic institution. And when Michael Jackson leaves the stage, there'll be somebody else to replace him. But, yeah. Anna Jackson, yes. Yeah. Right. Or her daughter, who knows. But the press... The press is a, is a wholly other thing that arises out of our desire to be a self-governing people. And the authority of the press makes a difference to us. We don't want to delegitimate uh, journalists. Even the elite press, which we uh, fire so many volleys at, and I myself do, is an important institution. And they're going to need to discover a way of maintaining their authority, building their authority that's more transparent, interactive, um, 
that listens better, as Jeff said, and institutions that have founded their authority on being closed and authoritative and ivory towerish in their way are not going to be able to do that anymore. And that's one of the biggest things roiling journalism right now. This is a point that Jay has made about the New York Times, which is a highly political institution, not only uh, internally, but in terms of its role in our society. They, they have a great deal to say about how politics uh, is perceived in America, and they've been a very non-transparent operation until quite recently, and there's some, uh, it, it's, it's now getting almost opaque, which is an improvement. But the fact that they do have an ombudsman now is, is great. And uh, Jay, I believe, or one of you guys, suggested that, they, uh, that the new ombudsman actually do a blog, that it would be the most effective, clean way to say what's going on inside the place. And I, I totally and, 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 agree and with that. Dan Okert reads blogs and pays attention. We can't see if there is somebody. Oh, there, there, so. We have. All right, great. Uh, question from the back. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm uh, delighted with this digital teaching in general and with this session in particular. This session is the, I think, best organized so far and promising because you've set things up. But I love Jay's presenting the historical background and, and Jeff's sort of looking at some of the ways we could go forward. Uh, I'm John McCarthy. I took an early retirement from Berkeley Lab in, in June so that I could work on uh, trying to use computers to uh, further uh, the betterment of our country. Uh, and I'd like to, to, to put this out, uh, a couple of things. One is that a lot of people, of course, have criticized the press for covering our, our public discourse more or less like the sports page. And I'm sure that given what I've heard from you guys, you're not in that camp. Um, but in the spirit of this teach-in, I'd like to offer up a couple of, of suggestions. One is that um, I think the public has begun to, to hear a lot about the, the blogs as one of the technologies that's come about in this, in this campaign. I think a couple of other things that seem much more pedestrian have actually been in some ways of more import. One is Yahoo Groups, which have brought people together in all kinds of different groupings in each of the campaigns. Uh, another is one that I only discovered about because I was working in this, and that's this uh, freeconference.com that allows people to set up free, well, <laughs> allows people to easily set up conference calls in which each participant pays. That, oh, we've got, we've got the person from Free Conference here. Is that what you're waiting about? Um, so, but another thing that's not, um, I think, being covered adequately in the press is there, there are some excellent sources out there, uh, namely the, this partnership between Capital Advantage and the League of Women Voters, the California League of Women Voters Smart Voter Project, and the Vote Smart project, not to be confused with the smart voter, which operates out of Montana. Back in the recall campaign here in California, I actually sent letters to many of the, the print and, and broadcast uh, media saying, 
could you please, in addition to covering, you know, this, this actor's uh, running for governor and, and all the horse race sort of aspects of this, could you please talk about what these resources are that the public can actually use to look at, at, at some of the facts? Um, and just didn't hear back. I, I just wasn't able to get through on that. So one thing I would suggest is that political journalists could partner with journalists covering technology and look at those technologies to criticize and, and improve them. That is, what are these, what are these uh, uh, League of Women Voters and so forth doing right? How could they do better? What are the candidates doing right? I really like the, the Jeff's suggestion about uh, um, that, that each candidate ought to have a blog and so forth. So how would you address, uh, you know, how can you as journalists further the technology? I, I think it's actually simpler than that. I think it's as simple as um, there's a story going on out there. Be curious about it and go see it. It's what Joe Trippi said this morning. We're all quoting Joe Trippi, importantly that he couldn't get somebody to go out and say, you know, idiot, move on as a story. Go out there with a camera. It was only when it became the money story. But now they saw it. Uh, is, is Pedro Molemi in here? No, unfortunately not. Uh, I want to do just one minute on, on the Iranian weblog revolution. One guy, the point here is these are just tools and they'll be used in many, many, many different ways. One guy in Toronto named Hossein Direction at Hoder.com uh, two years ago started a weblog and said, here's how you blog in Persian. Today, there are an estimated 100,000 Persian weblogs. It's the third biggest language by one count in, in the blogosphere. And these people are bringing a revolution on because it's a tool. It's just a tool. And, and we think we're in the middle of some revolution. Well, there's big revolutions going on with weblogs and with citizens media in Iran and China and Iraq. And, and the par point there is the same one you just raised, is that, the, is that what matters, though, is that that gets attention paid, and then somebody sees what's being said out of this, and these stories get raised up, because there still is a press that still does own printing presses and broadcast towers, and can get stories out in a big way. Add one thing to that. Uh, whenever you think about the wonderful information resources online and how do we get people to use them, uh, consider this. Journalists think, a lot of people think, a lot of us probably think that we need to give people information so they can participate. But it is more likely that if people participate, they will seek information. So that's why it's important to get people involved almost in anything. Uh, it's activity comes first. And journalists in this country made a big mistake long time ago when without realizing it, they began not to care if people got engaged with the information. They cared only if they received the information. That was a mistake because they failed to reproduce their own public, as it were. But a function, perhaps, of the mass of mass media in yeah, part. And that, that. There are two issues, though, that this raised. One is that the journalist has to do a better job in understanding and using these things and communicating with whoever is out there. But we also need better tools that you folks can help develop for the Exactly. people who have been the audience to roll their own news reports so they get better uh, information than they can get from sole sources the way it's done now. Question in the front, please. Yes, uh, I'm Ellen Nagler. Hi, Jay. Um, I want to thank you, first of all, for the historical perspective. 
Uh, I want to thank Sterling Newberry for his historical perspective on the economics as well as the politics of our democratic trajectory. Um, and I want to thank Wes Clark because when he acknowledged his webcast, on his webcast, he acknowledged the draft movement as similar to the committees of correspondence in the 17, late 1700s. So that all ties together. Uh, I love Bob because I love, I mean, among many other things, because I love the radio component of it. Mm. And I just love radio. Richard Petro taught me radio news. And, um, and I just wonder where you see that emerging, re-emerging, in fact, in the, in the political press mix. Thank you. Well, um, Ellen is referring to uh, a site I'm an editor of called BOP News, B-O, BOPnews.com. Uh, Chris Lydon, Matt Stoller, myself, Sterling Newberry, others. It's uh, about blogging and the transformation of politics during 2004. And um, one of the things Chris Lydon is doing, as many people know, is just interviewing people in audio form, putting the interviews up online, and you can listen to them, and some of them are amazing. Uh, you're interviewed. Are you interviewed? Uh, I am in uh, but I'm not the most amazing one. Uh, Jeff, uh, Dick Morris, and many other people are up there. And it's, for him, I think that if you just look at what he has done, he's a professional, he's not a citizen, he's not Joe Average, he's had a long career in the media. But the fact that he can put up any interview he wants at any length he wants and say, this is now on the public record, this person said this. You can find out yourself. You don't have to rely on some other journalist. That itself is uh, significant. Uh, the problem with audio is that it's not, uh, in the way that it's served up now online, it's not portable, and people tend to listen when they're in motion, and we've got to solve that problem. But once people solve that problem, uh, it's going to be interesting what happens to the interview as a kind of professional form that's been dominated by people who are trained and get paid to write, may become a citizen form. Because an interview is a very democratic instrument. It's a very easy thing for people to master. And I think there ought to be a lot of interviews online done by a range of people, and not all of them are going to be journalists. There, there is one other problem with posting audio and video online. The better it is, the more it costs you, the person who put it up there, <laughs> to deliver it. And, well, this is why peer-to-peer needs to be saved from the the, uh, copyright cartel, but it's one reason. And it's just have to be cautious here. We do have a war going on between forces of central control who may not be doing it for that reason, but who could really shut off Effectively, well, but this, Dan, this if you own the thing, then it has nothing to do with that. It's still just a bandwidth issue, and it needs P2P and BitTorrent. That has nothing to do with copyright. That's, that's your choice to put up your interview. So that's, that's But the copyright not... people are trying to kill peer-to-peer for other reasons. I'm sorry. I've got to disagree on that. You can still use BitTorrent. You can still put up your material. It's your material. It's fine. And we should encourage that. It just needs to be easier. Well, they're in court now trying to, to right. put out of business peer-to-peer things that have legitimate uses. Anyway, in the back, we'll take another question. The history is, is kind of full of dichotomies. We hear about journalists versus bloggers, uh, big media versus little media. Uh, I wanted to toss another dichotomy at you, which would be corporate versus corpuscular, uh, which is to say... Uh, well, there's an image. Well, 
it's not very catchy, but I, th- I think it, catch- it captures an essential dichotomy. Um, you know, this is the empowerment of the individual. Uh, and I really think corporations are going to have trouble, whether it's the New York Times or CNN or Microsoft, coping with the empowerment of the individual. Uh, it, it really, what you have is kind of an eBay, eBayization, and nobody said eBay yet today, so I get to say it, uh, of politics in which individuals uh, take on the role of the buyers and sellers of information and no longer have to go through the big, the corporate mediators. So I just wanted to toss that idea at you. Henry, I think you're right with a lot of companies, but the smart ones do get it. And, you know, in my company, I'm not trying very hard not to plug mine, but my boss sees the value of the audience bringing content to our site. It's inexpensive, it's new, and it's engaging. And that can happen. Also, it's, it's not just that people can get information without going through professionals or going around the media. It's the different motivations that uh, bloggers and other citizens involved in the media have. What worried Microsoft, I'm sure, about open source is not just that it could come up with products equal to or, or somehow compete in that sense. It's the energy of people who are doing it for love. And this is a very powerful thing. Professionals may love their work, but they're doing it for a living. They can get paid. They can devote themselves for full time. The bloggers are at a disadvantage in many ways because they're not necessarily able to do that, but they have an advantage, which is they're doing it for love. Love of writing, love of participation, love of their community, love of getting reactions from the 50 people who read their uh, blog. That's a very powerful thing. And uh, it may sound romantic or sentimental to people, but it's not. It's a very practical thing. Uh, and, And amateurs, in that sense, are a threat, not because they're going to take over a franchise, but because they have such different motivations uh, for what they're doing. And the root of amateur, the word, of course, is lover. People do it for love. That is a huge thing. I, I want to point out the, the amateur uh, participatory grassroots journalism, whatever you want to call it, is that is not the threat, from my perspective, to big media that is the most serious one. You mentioned it. It's eBay, which is the world's largest classified advertising site, contrary to all of people calling it an uh, auction site. That's class- classified ads. We're being picked apart, uh, nibbled away at, by people who want all of the discrete revenue streams of the big media and who don't really need the large margins that the current big media enjoy. And that may be the bigger threat. So there's a... Uh, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing that that's happening, but it's uh, the journalism will sort itself out, I think. We'll have lots new voices, more voices are better. But the business model may be the even bigger and uh, more serious threat in the end. Yeah. Um, my name's Tim Bishop. Um, it's great to see technologists and practitioners of politics talking to each other. That doesn't happen very often. And I don't know if it's harder to explain technology to politicians or politics to technologists, but it's good that it's happening. But one question I have is there's a disdain here for the mass media, and it's talked to sort of this giant lump. But I think Jay just touched on it. What are the, 
What are the imperatives pushing them in the direction? I remember after 9-11, we were all going to do serious journalism. We're going to do issues. We're going to cover the foreign news. And, you know, how long did it take till you know, it's back to its old practices? But, you know, what are the imperatives that push it in that direction? Before I let him answer, I want to say I do not disdain the mass media, which... Uh, compensates me nicely uh, and lets me do these things and talk about these things. And I believe in mass media in its role, in particular, in doing big investigations that are going to be hard to do if that disappears. And I'm, uh, I'm afraid of that world where there is no mass media. That doesn't, I, I want there to be all of this, not just some of it. I know Jeff has a very different view on this. He calls himself a big media guy, uh, and I'll let him explain, a media guy. I'll let him explain what he means by that. Uh, to me, the important pressures forcing change are on journalists because they don't exactly know where their future is going to come from. The space in which they can practice their craft is under tremendous squeeze from the very organizations they work in, from big media, from corporations from the fact that little investment as possible into content has become a principle of media production. And so the withdrawal of investment from journalism is a major threat to journalism, and that comes from the media. So one of the problems we have with the critical discourse, especially on the net, is that people aren't making any distinction between the craft of journalism and what threatens it and what they call the big media which is really just as much a threat to journalism as it is to them. So uh, in journalism, the, what's, what's causing change is the simple fact that the model of professionalism in which we tell you what you need to know because we know, because we're, we're connected to the insiders who are actually operating in this country, uh, because we can get behind the scenes and tell you what the real operators are doing. That whole authority system is starting to come undone. Journalists, in their minds, have always represented us, the big public, with the insiders in trying to get them to uh, speak the truth. But for a long time, people in the public have seen journalists as themselves insiders. And this has uh, worn away at their authority. And so for journalists, the the problem is that they are not, it's not that they're mistrusted in some global way, but their authority to monopolize the news is eroding. Their authority to say what's within bounds of discussion and what's not is eroding. Scott uh, uh, Rosenberg made this point in Salon that the media's ability to say this is out of bounds and can't be part of a mainstream campaign is eroding. And some journalists are hip to this, and they're trying to figure out how they can claim a role without dominating in the way they once did or without being unquestioned. And so that's the challenge for the press right now, is to find a form of authority that's more interactive, more transparent, more open. Uh, I just want to say that uh, if you compare Technorati's top 100 to the top uh, or, or, or hot things on today in Technorati versus the front pages, you're going to find a different view, and the masses are speaking, and I like to hear what the masses are speaking, and I want to hear as many of those masses speak as we can. So, uh, yeah. Hi, thanks. Um, you mentioned earlier the, the very appealing notion that every, you know, your, the school board meeting should be webcast, and 
and presumably the the housing board and the road board meeting webcast and blogs from every every representative at every level. I wonder at some point, once we have this much information available to everyone, will there be a need for, I don't know if it's a journalist role or a blogger's role, although there are many blogs as well, for digesting analysis or, and when there's so much stuff that I can't read it all myself, how do I find Sure, all the, all the more so. That's what bloggers do and that's what editors do is we, we read so you don't have to. And I think that, yes, the more information is a good thing, and the more that, that it gets edited is a good thing. So does that, does that answer maybe the question of the future role of journalists is no longer to have the insider's authority, but to do what, what you said the journalists did before is tell me what's important because I don't have the time to find out what's important myself. Yeah. Now there's just more of them to do it. Pointing to information will become an essential journalistic act. The, the Sherpa role for the journalist, Ross. Thanks. Hi. Um, just a quick comment. If somebody has a comment, it'd be great if they put it in the back channel or blogged it and not taken up the mic time. Um, but I just did that, so never mind. Um, so, uh, but my question is this. I mean, just like third-party issues are easily co-opted by the two dominant parties in power, we're seeing the same thing with, uh, with blogging and social software being adopted, as you noted with, let's say, the New York Times establishing the blog form of journalism. Um, the question is, we do have something a little bit really unique and perhaps competitive in social software. When you look at Wikipedia and you look at the way that there is actually not just quantity or speed, but really darn good quality that is exhibited. And you have the same thing with the right amount of deliberation within blogs and perhaps even some greater emergent intelligence than an editor could produce themselves. So maybe you could just address kind of the comparisons of quality and whether we're on a different kind of track where there is something that, I mean, people on AOL prefer to read things that are generated by other users. So I'm wondering if there's a deeper competitive threat here. Well, within a certain group of people, there's no question that uh, blogs and related technologies are the way they get their news. They, they get their news by visiting uh, blogs. And I think it's also true, Russ, that for certain areas, the quality is higher in the small world of weblogs than it is for the equivalent function in the mass media. I'll give you one example. is Op-ed argument by journalists is not at the same competitive level as op-ed argument among webloggers. And the reason is that webloggers, first of all, have to point to everything they're talking about, where journalists can get away with saying, someone said that, or it's fashionable to claim this. But if you're a weblogger, you, you can't really do that. You have to show us what you're talking about. And webloggers get responded to immediately, and they get criticized immediately. And I think journalists are kind of being, in a sense, let's say daily journalists, are not meeting the same standards of argument and evidence that exist in a admittedly small arena online. Now, that doesn't mean that webloggers are replacing them. It means that the, the quality question is all over the map. There are certain things that are done online that blow away what a daily newspaper can do for you, completely blow away. Uh, just as an information resource. But it's not just a threat. Uh, there's talk about big media co-opting blogs. You can't. It's a gangly beast, and it can never be co-opted. It's the people speaking. But then it's also important in my online businesses, uh, 100 million page views a month for me are forum posts. 
And that's the audience's content, that's the audience talking, and that's really, really important stuff. And so there's ways, I think, to find new networks that we can be part of and create that don't just co-op, but they cooperate. Also, if you learn from your own comments, yeah. you're going to write a better blog than a journalist who can. Read the comments. My, my mantra on all this is my readers know more than I do. Yeah. They just do. And that's good for me, not bad for me. Uh, let's, I think we have time for one more uh, here in front. I, I have a two-part question. The first is, what does digital democracy look like? Will every, every voter uh, vote on every bill? Will lobbying go away? Will, uh, what political institutions will be impacted? And then the second, the, the, the second question is, what is the role of portals such as MSN and Yahoo and Google in this? Because they are the ones that attract uh, the majority of, uh, of the public and the majority of the voters. I personally pray we do not have instant democracy. That's mob rule, and uh, it would really worry me, but I'll let these guys address the rest of this. Okay, I'll give you my answer in a second to the digital democracy thing. I think it's the wrong question to ask. I don't know what a digital democracy looks like. We should just ask, what's a democratic culture look like? And what role can digital tools play in that? I don't think we are off on the right foot when you immediately assume that you have now a new kind of democracy that's digital. Uh, we, we need to create a democratic culture to go with a democratic system. So what can digital technology do for us in creating a democratic culture is a better question than what does a digital democracy look like? And to go to the second question, I, I think that, that uh, Google, and, I mean, Yahoo and MSN are like old media, old big media, and they aren't really having a role in the distributed world here. Uh, Tectorati and blog decks are become more important in this new world where you find what matters to you. I hate to close it off, but um, I've been I given just, pretty strict orders. Uh, you, if you have a two ten second comment, yeah. Ahead. Well, just people who want to do audio and video can put it at archive.org. I've been told yeah. it, the interface okay. is kind of clunky now, but within the next few weeks, we'll have a better interface and be easier. And that's and you can just link to it if it's under Creative Commons license. It, that's, that, that's true. That's the one caveat. Uh, please thank my panelists thank here. Thank you. And thank you.